Wow. Well, um, if you didn't hear my name just now, my name is Josiah. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, I lead the youth and family ministry here, and I have the honor and privilege to do, be doing the first half of the sermon today. So we'll turn our Bibles to Luke 19, and the title of the sermon today is The Return of the King. Oh, Sam. <laughs> okay. So we'll be picking up in verse 11. And... Oh, let me get there, actually. Okay, yep. In Luke 19, verse 11, it reads, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. Put this to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money on deposit so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them right in front of me. So, <laughs> intense. So the first point is the king has chosen you. So this parable starts off by telling us its purpose, which is nice because there's a lot of parables that don't do that. Like they just come out of the blue and 
you're wondering, okay, what is Jesus trying to say here? And then you have like eight different interpretations. Like if Jesus was feeling like a little like iffy, maybe he meant this. Or what if the crowd was made of this people? Maybe he was saying this. But this parable makes it nice and simple. He's saying, you know, what, what was happening here was that because they were nearing Jerusalem, some people were expecting some things to go down. They were expecting the kingdom of God to uh, have to appear because he was coming close. And so Jesus then gives this parable where he talks about this man of noble birth who had this opportunity to become king and then he needs his servants to take care of his business until he returns. So he picks 10 of them, gives them 10 minas each, demonstrating that he trusts them to utilize his money in order to continue to gain profit until he returns. When will this person return? It's unknown, to be honest. We, there's a situation about 50 years before when Jesus was saying this, right in the same area where someone was going to be king and it took three years for this to happen. And so in this parable, the servants didn't actually know when the master was coming back. They just knew he will return. And when he returns, they want to have something for them. And so he comes back despite all of his subjects who hated him that were like, let's sabotage him, let's send a delegation to ruin his kingship. Despite all that, he's able to come back. And so he rounds up his servants and checks out, okay, what have you done with the money I've given you? Which, ten mina was essentially about two and a half years of like the average wage. So imagine working for two and a half years and then just being given that money at once. Then him saying, what are you going to do with this? What kind of profit will you make? How are you going to be trustworthy with this money? And when we see this parable, we can see this parallel to our life. That Jesus is saying, you know what? in the same way that the servants were given this mina, they were given this great blessing, you were as well. You are given this, this great blessing from God. And he's saying, what are you going to do with it? And for me, that sounds, that can be very crazy for me to hear. Because when I first think of it, I could think of all the blessings I don't have from God. You know, I, I come from a very musical family. Um, my brother plays instruments, sings. My sister plays instruments, sings. My cousins play instruments, sings. And so, every Christmas, we would have this um, time where we get together, we have food, we have like different games, but they would always have this talent show. And 
as you can see from me never being up here on worship, there is a reason. <laughs> I cannot sing. And back in the day, I did not own a kazoo. So I, I was instrumentless. Okay, and so it would be a very awkward time for me every single year because it would be, one, a reminder that I don't have a talent. I don't have something that I could show to the family. And instead, what I had every single year was my family trying to creatively get me to be a part of the talent show without having a talent. <laughs> so there was a lot of me being in the background, like acting as if I knew the word to whatever song they were singing, and it just like swaying and it, it, was, it was an awkward experience. And, and so when I have experiences like that, and then I see this passage where it's like, God is saying, I have blessed you in all of these ways, I'm like, God, but where? I don't have those talents that my, my family has. We're, I don't have the talents that some people that I would love to, I would love to be able to sing. I would love to do that. Like, where is my mina? But God has a very simple reply to this. It's, it's not me taking a 10-minute survey to go figure out what is your talent? What is your mina? It's God saying, I've chosen you. And because I've chosen you, I have given you mina. And, and that's what we have to realize is that we have been chosen by God. And because we have been chosen by God, God has blessed you. You know, he, didn't, he only called the servants that he chose to go check out the mina. He didn't say, oh, the servants that I never gave mina to, let me see what you've done. But the ones that he chose, he was like, I have great expectations of you. I have great trust in you because I have given you something. And, and so what does that look like? Maybe it is some talent for you, like singing, dancing. Maybe even like poems or art. Or maybe it's just a character trait. Maybe you have a great amount of patience. Maybe you are great at encouraging and you can just make some cookies for people on like a day that they're off, right? Or maybe you have time. And time, that is, that is some minor right there. <laughs> we, we could probably all use a little bit more of that, right? And so... We, we tend to just miss out on that and miss out on our mina. But what is your mina? What is the mina that God has given you? Because God did not give you two mina while giving someone else ten. You know, we, we can sometimes be like, oh, God has definitely blessed this person way more than me. Well, the truth is God has also blessed us equally. And that if we are feeling like, oh, I, I don't really have anything, then maybe we're missing out on some of the blessings that God has given us. 
And one important part that we can sometimes also miss in this parable is that when he gives the people mina and they prove to be trustworthy, there's also this instance where he gives them even more responsibility. And I think for us, when we have like, when it comes to the church and we, we can be like, okay, yes, God has given me this way to impact the church, to help out, right? Whether it's, you're super encouraging. Maybe you're the person who gives people like cookies. But what's so interesting is all they did was just increase the amount of money. And then he was like, here's territories to go run. Like, that is a crazy jump. That is like, you make cookies for someone, and they're like, have you thought about being the pastor? <laughs> like, wait, where did this come from? All I did was make cookies. But in the same way, maybe, maybe we have found our mind. Maybe we found ways to go help and serve and things like that, the people that we know. But maybe we need to also take a second to think, is God, does God want to give me even more? And when we see opportunities to do even more, we don't have to be like, oh, but I've not had anything close. Because as we see in this parable, these people went from just making some more money to running cities. That's the kind of jump that God wants to make. That he wants to give you more. He wants to give you the honor of working for him in some spectacular ways. And lastly, one important aspect that I just want to note before I pass it off to James is that this parable has nothing to do with performance. It's not God saying, because you have made me 10 more mina, I want to make you have all these cities and you're going to be awesome. He's saying, you've, you've been able to make 10 more mina with the 10 that you had. You're probably going to be able to do 10 cities. Maybe... Maybe the person who is only able to make five mina, maybe like doing 10 cities is going to be way too much for them. And so five makes a lot more sense. It's, it's not really a comparison game. It's God giving you what you can handle. And, and, and really what we see with the last person and why they're so upset is they had this talent. They had this blessing from God and they didn't even want to use it for him. They had this blessing and were like, let me go hide this. And, and so if there's really anything here, they're just saying, hey, use this talent. Use this blessing that I've given you for me. Even if you fail and you, and you end up making no more profit, right? You start a business here to go make me more money and it fails and burns to the ground. The master will be like, all right, you tried. You, you just put it on deposit and it's like, hey, you know, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. Uh, I'm not that creative. But he's like, oh, you tried. And, and so what this really is trying to say is because the king has chosen us, let's go recognize the minor that we have and be trustworthy with it. And so with that, I'll have James share. And I'm, I'm grateful for Josiah and Morgan and the way that they lead the youth and family ministry. I think they've been doing a great job. They took over in the middle of COVID, 
and uh, have been just serving uh, nonstop in that ministry and, and really exemplifying the idea of being trustworthy with, uh, with what they've been tasked with. And I appreciate that. You know, this passage is all about being trustworthy. And um, what Josiah was saying made me think of a, an illustration I, I often use in Bible studies. And it's about the man who bargained with God. You know, I, I usually share it with the verse that says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must give up everything that they have. We know that verse. We know that verse as a, a, a key component of discipleship. Well, um, I, I kind of tell the story of, of the man who read that and said, okay, well, then I'll give up everything. And then God kind of appears there and says, okay. And so the guy's like, oh, you, you really want everything? And God's like, yeah, that's what you said, right? So he pulls out his wallet, gets all his cash, and says, there you go. That's everything. I'll have to, you know, go to the ATM later and get some cash, but it's worth it because I, I, I want to serve you. And God goes, oh, you got, a, you got a debit account? And the guy's like, oh, okay, I see. You meant everything. Okay, let me go over. And God pulls out, I don't know, a square, you know, the adapter for the credit card reader. And he's like, okay, all my, all my checking account, that's to you. I'll definitely have to pull from savings, but I want to give everything to you. And God goes, you got a savings account? <laughs> and the guy goes, wow, you, you, you really meant it, huh? Everything? And so then he passes that over, puts in the account number, whatever, right? Passes it over to God. I don't know how I'm going to pay for my house this year or this month. I don't know how I'm going to, you know, pay my mortgage. God goes, you got a house? I'll take that too. The guy goes, what? I, I'm going to have to live in my car. You got a car? I'll take that. He goes, what, what is my family going to do? How's my family going to survive? God goes, you got a family? I'll take that too. What, what, what am I going to do? All I have left is me. God goes, I'll take that too. And he takes him and then the, the man ends up with all of his stuff, all of his money, all of his, his family, all of his relationships and meaningful interactions that he has. And God says, I'm going to send you back now. But I want you to live knowing that all of this belongs to me. That none of this stuff is actually yours. All of it is stamped with my name. And the way that you are to live is in recognition that all of this stuff, all of your life now belongs to me. And to me, that's kind of what the story is saying. The, the mina that's handed out is the kings or the soon-to-be kings. And it belongs to the king. And we've got to recognize that what we have from God belongs to God. And we must prove faithful or trustworthy with that. You know, this passage is all about being trustworthy. There were servants in this story who were faithful. They understood the assignment. In Matthew's account, you know, the words are, Well done, good and faithful servant. We love that phrase in our, in our fellowship, right? Well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because we want to hear that at the end, right? At the end of, of days, we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Yesterday, I got to celebrate 17 years as a Christian. 17 years ago, yesterday, I was baptized. Also, happy spiritual birthday to Josue. Um, there's Josue. We share the same day, which is cool. Amen. But I think throughout my life, and, and this call to say, I want to end faithful. It's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? I want to end faithful to God. And I think over the last 17 years, I've experienced times where I felt like I was being faithful to the call of God. And I know there were years that I felt like I wasn't being faithful to the call of God. I was doing the stuff that you're supposed to do. Sometimes, sometimes I wasn't doing the stuff that you're supposed to do. But I, I know there were times where I wasn't being faithful. And yet, the goal is to persevere through those times and to finish strong, to finish faithful. You know, here the servants are praised for being trustworthy with a few things, proving their ability to be trusted with more things. 
The same word in the Bible that's used for being faithful or being trustworthy is used here. And it's the word pistos. P-I-S-T-O-S. Pistos. It's the Greek word. And it means to be faithful. Mind-blowing, right? To be faithful means to be faithful. It means of persons who show themselves to be faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, or the discharge of official duties. So the idea to be faithful is to say, I am going to handle the task that's been given to me. My son, Jack, who's five, is proving himself faithful with the task of bringing in the trash cans after trash day. Right? He's doing a great job with it. The trash can is like twice his size, but he kind of pulls it down the driveway, and he's faithful with that task. More faithful than I am with certain tasks. Sometimes Elena will send me out to the store, and I forget what I'm supposed to get and come home with chocolate instead. I'm like, I, 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 I've misunderstood. <laughs> you know, that we, we have tasks that we're called to do, and, and to be faithful means to carry out those tasks in the way that they were asked. Even in this story, to, to do even more with those things, to go beyond maybe what, what had been expected. But to be faithful, that, that idea in the Bible is similar to the idea of being faithful within a marriage. Fidelity is similar to this idea of pistos, to be faithful, to be uh, uh, loyal, and to actually fulfill the duties that were given. Oftentimes, we know that the Bible talks about faith and believing in God. But sometimes I think we, or kind of our Christian society, thinks that faith in God just means, do I believe that God exists? Do I believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And let me check that off. But true faith isn't simply a, a cognitive acceptance of there being a God, but true faith is being faithful or loyal or trustworthy with that reality. And there's a difference between the two. In fact, James, uh, the, the book of James, calls this out. He says, even the demons believe that there's a God. They have that checklist faith. But I'm calling you to action, calling you to obey. Real faith is tied to obedience, tied to loyalty, and tied to belief. All of those go together when the Bible talks about faith. And so that means for us that real faith isn't simply belief, but it's being trustworthy, right? And that breaks down kind of the definition of you have proved faithful with a few, and now you're going to get more. And so we as, as God's people, as Christians, want to strive to live faithfully. Something that's cool is this word pistas is also used in talking to Thomas, when Thomas is doubting that Jesus really rose from the dead, uh, in uh, John 20, Jesus says, Hey, touch, touch my side, touch my, my, my hands and feel the hole so that you can be trustworthy. Not just so you believe cognitively that I rose from the dead, but that that belief will then turn into service to me. Which is exactly what Thomas goes and, and does. And he brings the gospel to India and he dies most likely by being speared to death. And uh, it's an amazing story just thinking about that. But uh, this word is also used in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians 1. When these letters are written to the Christians, it says, to the faithful in Ephesus, to the faithful in Colossia. Again, it's not just those who cognitively believe, but to those who are trustworthy with the message that they have received. Um, and even in 2 Timothy 2.2, uh, Timothy is instructed to entrust to reliable men. That word reliable same word, pistos, faithful, people who can carry out the task that is given to them. So it's all throughout the Bible that if we're going to be Christians, we must be faithful, we must be loyal, we must be obedient and, and, and fulfill the task that God has given us. What does that actually look like? What does it mean to be trustworthy? 
Well, this story tells us that it means to recognize what you've been given and to also recognize what is expected from that. And I appreciate what Josiah was saying. It's so easy to operate in a scarcity mindset. That's what Elaine and I call it, where you're aware of what you do not have. You're aware of the scarcity of your time, of your resources, of your energy to give to other people, whatever it is. We're aware of what we don't have. But to be trustworthy recognizes what we've been given from God. And it's, it's not just our talent, as, as Josiah said. It's not just our, our skill set, but it's, it's literally our, our one another relationships is a, a mina or a task that's been given to us. All that we have is a responsibility given from God. The things that we have, the, the experience even that we have. Maybe we've experienced trauma in a particular way. Well, that becomes then a responsibility to go and, and help others work through their trauma or to go and learn through how can I cling to God in this time. All that we have becomes a responsibility then to prove ourselves trustworthy with. And sometimes, again, I get burdened by expectation. I get burdened by the things that I know I'm supposed to do. But that's often when I don't see the task before me as something given by God. Right? I'm aware of what I need to do instead of what God has given me to fulfill the task. And that, that points to this idea of the power of reframing. Right? If we really recognize that the king has entrusted us with certain things, it then reframes the task given us. Right? That we realize that God has, has offered this to us and it then changes our perspective. So we want to be faithful, right? I think in this room, we're like, amen. Being faithful, that's what I'm here for. That's what I, I agreed to when I said Jesus is Lord. But let's talk a little bit more about why we want to be faithful. You know, this passage kind of paints this picture of be faithful or else. Right? And we, we kind of glaze over that last line. Then he called the enemies and he had them killed before him. We're like, okay, let's go back to the father running to the son. I like that story. We read this parable, we're like, What? But we got to understand a few things about this parable to get the right motivation for why we want to be trustworthy with what we've been given from God. You know, this man in the story, the nobleman, is not necessarily representing the heart of Jesus. This parable is told to illustrate a principle. A principle that was accepted, as Josiah said, in the world today. That that you're going to be given something by a king or by a ruler and... You are expected then to take that responsibility and, and prove faithful with what you've been given. That's the illustration that Jesus is using. He's not using this parable to explain the heart of God. Because uh, Luke, as the evangelist telling the story of Jesus, this heart of Jesus would be out of character in the other parables or the other opportunities that show the heart of Jesus. So what's being said here is not, you better be faithful or else but rather pointing to a greater reason to be faithful. Pointing to a much greater king. A king whose kingship does not need to be questioned. A king who, yes, goes away and comes back fully king and, and does silence his enemies, of course, but does so in a much different way. Let's check out the rest of this story in uh, uh, Luke 19, verse 28. All right, Luke 19, 28. So after he tells this parable... Uh, we see another scene involving a king. Verse 28 says this, After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. 
Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner asked him, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. Pause there real quick. I think this is cool as an example of being faithful with the task that's given. Right? I'm sure they were like, really? That's how we're supposed to respond? But they were faithful to the words of Jesus and, and did as he said to do, and it worked out. Which I think is kind of cool in the middle of this story. Um, some of the details there point to the idea of being trustworthy. All right, verse uh, 35. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And we'll stop there. We'll read more about the temple and kind of this prophecy. We'll talk about that next week. But what's happening here is the king is returning, returning to Jerusalem, right? Just like in the parable, but we have a greater king, a king who's arriving not to slaughter his enemies, but a king arriving to be slaughtered for his enemies. We have a very different king arriving on the scene saying, I'm here. Yes, I'm king. Yes, I should come in as king and riding uh, the donkey is a prophecy from Zechariah. I'm coming in as king, but my task isn't to silence all the people who doubt me by, by giving them no more voice, but to silence them by proving I'm the true king by dying, by dying for my enemies. As Roman points out, that while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. This is the ultimate return of the king. And the crowd doesn't fully grasp this. Because they think he might be coming in to maybe upend the Roman government. But they grasp that Jesus is meant to be king to the degree where they start to throw down their cloaks. They recognize this is, this is what I used to keep warm. This is supposed to be clean. But this thing that I value that I've been given, I'm going to throw it on the ground so that the king has a pathway that is, that is made for, that is worthy of a king. You know, we talked about this word, pistos. And it's used to describe uh, something else in the Bible. And it's not our call simply to be faithful, but it's also used to describe the very nature of God. You know, we're called to be trustworthy because God has shown himself to be worthy of our trust. We are called to be trustworthy servants of God because God has proven that he is worthy of our trust. This word pistos, faithful, is used to describe God all throughout the New Testament. In Hebrews 10, 23, where it says, hold unswervingly to the promise before you. It says the motivation behind that, because he uh, who promised is faithful. Because God has given us promises and he is trustworthy with our sacrifice, with us holding unswervingly to the task at hand. In 2 Timothy 2.13, one of my all-time favorite passages, it lists off, you know, if we disown God, he will disown us. If we turn away from God, all this stuff. But then it says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. Same word. As, as we lack faith, as we struggle in our journey, he will remain faithful. I remember, man, five or six years ago, uh, looking at this passage with Sam Williams. Uh, the, the night before he got baptized, and he was wrestling with, do I really want to make this, this decision, this commitment? He's like, what if, I, what if I fail? What if I run into problems? What if I doubt later on? And we looked at this passage, 
that, that while we might be faithless at times, he will remain faithful. And he goes, let's go. Let's go. And the next morning he's fired up and was baptized into Christ. Amen. But, but that mindset that, yeah, we're going to fall on our face, but God will never quit on you. God will never stop being faithful. And 1 Peter 4.19 describes God as a faithful creator, that he's been faithful from the beginning. And this is God's description. And why do we need to be trustworthy? Because we have a king who is worthy of our trust. We have a king who is faithful and trustworthy uh, for us. He isn't giving up on you. He isn't quitting. He's not looking for plan B because you're not working out. And he has not changed his mind about you. We see this lived out in the disciples. The disciples are the, you know, the, the servants here in the story who've been given the gospel message from Jesus. And what do they do with it in the very beginning? They squander it. They, they all flee. They all run away. They all prove not faithful with the task given them. And Jesus says, all right, forget you guys. I'm going to die for somebody else. No, he says, I'm going to continue to die for you. I'm going to restore you. And I'm going to continue this call for you to be faithful. I don't know where you're at in your journey right now. Maybe you feel like, man, I'm faithful. I'm ready. Bring it on. Um, well done, good and faithful servant. Maybe you feel like, man, I, I feel a little down. I feel like recently I know the task before me, but I'm not living faithfully. And we can get stuck in that mindset and, and, and actually get ourselves stuck. But instead, picture God being faithful to you in that time and saying, I, I haven't stopped trusting you. I haven't stopped entrusting you with these things. And the call is still the same. All it takes is a decision to be faithful. He is worthy of our trust. In our finances, he is worthy of our trust. Yeah, we need to trust him, but not just because we better trust him or else, but because he's worthy. We, we, we can trust that God will meet our needs and supply our needs. When it comes to dating, when we're feeling alone, choosing to not date in the world, but to date other Christians, we can do that because we trust God's promises that God will fulfill. Not always what I want, but God knows what I need, and I can trust that God is worthy of that trust and fall through. When it comes to committing and making a decision to become a Christian, to become a disciple, we can trust that I don't know what the future holds. I said it's been 17 years. I could not have predicted what the past 17 years were like, and many people can relate to that. But I trust that God is carrying me through it all. If you're, if you're wrestling with the decision to get baptized, with the decision to commit to God, know that God is worthy of your trust along the way. When it comes to confessing sin and not knowing what's going to happen, if I finally get open about this thing that's been dogging me, we can trust that, that openness is always better than closeness, that living in the light is always better than the darkness, and that God is worthy of our trust. And even when it comes to working on the relationships, we've been in, in a COVID world for the last two years, and it has in some ways pulled us apart at varying degrees, right? We, we've gotten great maybe in our small groups to varying degrees, but we're, we're a lot of different ministries right now. We're working on being a family again. But that takes work, and that takes trusting that I don't know the result of putting in the work necessary, but I trust God. Why? Because he's worthy of my trust. I'm going to fight for those relationships, and I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to pursue the kind of relationships that God is calling me to. Why? Because he's worthy of our trust. We have a king who is worthy of our trust. So much so, by the way, that he says that if the crowd stop praising Christ, stop praising Jesus, that even the stones will cry out. That even if we don't recognize the worthiness, 
creation sees the worthiness of God. We, we see this actually in a kind of a strange story, in the story of Cain and Abel. When God confronts Cain for killing his brother Abel, he says, the ground is stained with your brother's blood and the ground cries out. And what's cool about that is that nature will speak truth. And here it says that you can't stop the praise of God. Why? Because he's our creator. He's our God and he is worthy of our trust. And even creation sees that. The stones cry out because he is our king. I think a huge part of being trustworthy is praising God. You know, this passage kind of points to that, right? That if we are going to be trustworthy, and and not just because of fear, because the king is going to come back, but if we recognize our glorious king and we praise him for who he is, then we're going to be trustworthy with the things that he's called us to do. When we acknowledge that he's 100% worthy of our trust, it's a lot easier to put our trust in him. You know, we see this in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? They, they were faithful. If you, if you know their story, um, they were pulled out from Babylon, and they were, or they were pulled out from uh, Jerusalem, and they were under Babylonian rule. And uh, they, were set, they were told, if you don't bow down to this statue that's not God, you know, statue of Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And, and they're confronted several times on it, and they say, you know what? You can throw us into the fire, but our God is going to deliver us. And then they go, and even if he doesn't, <laughs> We're still going to go in, right? And, and there's this faith that almost doesn't make sense. God's going to deliver us, but there's like this escape clause. But even if he doesn't, we're still not bowing down, right? And there's this shameless audacity that says he is worthy of our trust, whether it works the way I want it to work or it doesn't. He is still worthy of our trust. Whether it goes how I want it to go, whether it, it happens the way that I would love to see it happen, he is worthy of our trust, What have you been entrusted with? Think about that for a second. Like, really think about it. What kinds of things have you been entrusted with? And not just your musical ability, not just maybe your job, not just, I don't know, maybe the the surface level, but take it a little bit deeper. What are some of your experiences that God has entrusted you with? What are some of the meaningful relationships in your life? What perspective? Sometimes... We see things, we can be critical, and that's actually not a bad thing if we see it as something that's given to us from God that we've been entrusted with. Because the things we're critical of can actually help us be part of the solution. Right? And so that's something that maybe God has entrusted you with, is a perspective that might be a little bit different. That can be a good thing. So what has God entrusted you with? Then pause for a second and think about just how cool that is that God has seen you Uh, to uh, Josiah's point as worthy of trusting you with whatever it might be. And it might be a really, really challenging situation in your life. But God has deemed you worthy of of that trust. Just as he is worthy of our trust, he has given you something and trusted you, which means you're worthy of that. Even the the king in the story trusted these servants with the mina, with this amount of money. God has entrusted you you. Not, you know, as a a nobleman from the story, but as King Jesus, as the king on the cross, the king of the comeback story. He has entrusted you. And and the the secondary question to what has God entrusted you with is what does God expect you to do with that? And really lean into that. Not what does church say, not, not what do you think, not what is comfortable to you, but if you were to sit down with God and God were to say, I've entrusted you with these things, 
and here's what I want you to do with them. What would that conversation be like? Would you be like, okay, but no, I'm going to do my own thing. Or if, if God were to tell you truly what he expects you to do with what he's entrusted you with, what would you do? What decisions do you need to make today to claim, proclaim that God is worthy of our trust? Challenge for us this week, by the way, the challenge from last week kind of carries over, and that was to, to grab a meal with someone you wouldn't, really, you wouldn't normally eat with, right? That was a two-week challenge. That continues on. But the challenge for today isn't, okay, go and, and work really hard with what you've been entrusted with. Go and change this. Go and work on this. Go, go deal with that relationship challenge, although those are all good things to do. challenge for us as a church this week is simply to praise him, to recognize who God truly is. Because if we recognize what is true about God, our lives will match that truth. If we recognize that God is worthy of our trust, living a trustworthy life will become second nature. If we're working on being trustworthy over and over and over again, we'll feel that burden. But if we just look at God as someone who's worthy of our trust, the trustworthiness will follow. The view of the king affects what we do for the king. The view of the king affects what we do for the king. I'm going to close out with the, the psalm here that was mentioned by the crowd. And that's Psalm 118. And uh, we'll pick up in verse 15. This is what the crowd is saying as Jesus is walking through the city. Our trustworthy God. Uh, this was written, this was a song written of kings long ago. And verse 15 it says, Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in, in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Amen.